Hi, this is Steve Nellick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 75, Practicalities. There is a point where we all have to acknowledge that we have no idea how our life really works. It just does. That Black Mirror smartphone that organises your life is based on some horrendously complex infrastructure involving everything from mining and refining rare elements to launching and then orbiting GPS satellites. So we can complain that we no longer understand the world around us, but if we're using the very things we don't understand to do that complaining, we are kind of missing the big picture. Anyhow, somewhere in there, we did mention satellites. Dear Cheap Astronomy, what do you know about satellite servicing? So here's a new twist on the space junk story. Firstly, remember there's two main populations of space junk, one in low Earth orbit, which includes various rocket stages, decommissioned surveillance satellites, and miscellaneous debris, all of which will eventually undergo orbital decay in years, decades, or centuries. Right now, we don't have a workable technical solution other than waiting for orbital decay to happen and trying to minimise the addition of any new junk. But there's another population of space junk in geostationary orbit, which is the most commercially valuable orbital real estate around Earth at the moment. Any obsolete satellites around geostationary orbit are unlikely to descend for millennia. Indeed, many may be flung out of orbit due to various Earth-Moon-Sun interactions over millennia. But in the meantime, we do need to get them out of the way. Once a geostationary satellite runs out of fuel, it's also out of control and becomes a danger to other still viable satellites. So, current protocol is that just before a geostationary satellite runs out of fuel, we raise its orbit by about 300 kilometres, which we call a graveyard orbit, where they can just sit safely out of harm's way. But it is a waste. All that most of our geostationary satellites have to do is capture a transmission from the ground and then rebroadcast it back down. Its altitude ensuring that broadcast reaches a much wider area of the Earth's surface than would be possible from a surface broadcast. There is some amplification and signal processing involved, but for the most part, these satellites are just glorified mirrors. So wouldn't it be great if you could just refuel them rather than replace them? On the 9th of October 2019, MEV-1, Mission Extension Vehicle 1, was launched. It's a proof-of-concept mission, and the plan is to dock it with the Intel 901 communication satellite, which is currently out of fuel and in a graveyard orbit. If all goes well, MEV-1 will clamp itself to IntelSat 901 and extend IntelSat 901's functional life by becoming a newly fuelled engine for it, and will bring it back down into active service in geosynchronous orbit. And because it is just a flying engine, after a five-year trial, MEV-1 might still have enough fuel to firstly return IntelSat 901 to the graveyard orbit, detach from it, 
and then go on to extend the life of another glorified mirror. So, that is the current state of satellite servicing science. And we still have to see this trial through to be sure it really works. There are major complexities involved in rendezvousing with a decommissioned satellite and clamping a new engine on it. The actual refuelling of satellites is still another step beyond. The first thing you'd need to do is to start launching satellites with a fuel cap and a docking mechanism. Nonetheless, as is common in space technology, there's already lots of hugely sophisticated new missions being mapped out on paper. The next generation of MEVs might launch with a set of 5 or 10 flying engine modules that will detach and extend the life of 5 or 10 satellites and then return to the mothership for refuelling. And after refuelling becomes an established thing, we might also start flying maintenance spacecraft with 3D printers aboard that can do in-orbit swap-in, swap-out repairs. And if we now have the technology to clamp onto and extend the life of geostationary satellites, we might next move to consider extending the lives of our medium-orbit GPS satellites that orbit the Earth once every two days in the second most valuable bit of Earth orbital real estate. After that, we might consider using the same technology to deorbit low-Earth orbiting objects, but there the economics get harder to work. Sure, removing space junk might make the world a better place, but whose responsibility is it? Which is really a question of who's going to pay for it, and who do you blame if something goes wrong? This is the middle bit. So there is a whole bunch of stuff going on that we don't really know about, but it's probably a good thing it is getting done, and getting done by robots. Indeed, things tend to go haywire when you put people in the picture. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, what would a multi-generational spacecraft look like? It would probably look like the human race's complete collection of moral dilemmas, all packed into one sardine can. The premise here is that we can't travel faster than light, or even get close to it, So the only way for people to reach other stellar systems is with a multi-generational spacecraft. So you get on board with your spouse and have kids, and then they have kids with other spouses' kids, and so on. To get to another Earth-like planet orbiting a sun-like star, you're looking at a travel time thousands of years long, and quite possibly tens or hundreds of thousands of years long. That's a lot of generations. So you'll need a drive system and fuel, and you'll also need gravity, not just for adult health, but also for safe childbirth and child development. And you'll need space to grow food, and so on. So yes, it will be a whopping big spacecraft, but in this episode, let's focus on the people side. In other words, the payload. For a multi-generational spacecraft to work, you'll need a breeding population with enough genetic diversity. It's been proposed you could have sufficient genetic diversity with a crew of just 80 people. But if your ship only has carrying capacity for 80 people, you'll need strict rules about how many kids anyone can have, 
and an expectation that the old folks will make noble sacrifices at a certain point. Assuming everyone goes along with all that, the oldies won't be stepping out of the airlock, since that would be a loss of valuable water, not to mention, well, let's just say Soylent Green. But of course you'll need to be careful about how you manage that recycling. If you create a vector for microorganisms to move from dead individuals to live individuals, you're in trouble. Indeed, just having lots of people crowded into an enclosed space and breathing the same air is trouble. You can't load 80 people onto a spacecraft without a whole bunch of pathogens going with them. On top of all the maintenance, the teaching and the farming work, it's unlikely the crew will have the time or the resources to run a pharmaceutical laboratory. So once all your onboard pathogens develop resistance to all the antibiotics you took off with, you're in trouble. And then of course there's the whole Lord of the Flies scenario. A bunch of isolated people with no alternate worldviews to draw on are going to get a little introspective, and the next generation who've never even viewed a world are going to get even more introspective. Of course, Earth will maintain a mission control, and hence provide a little sanity, but when all the ship is doing is just going forward, on and on through empty space, there'll inevitably be staff cutbacks. And the farther out the ship is, the longer the time delay for radio communications, so there'll quickly come a point where Earth will be no help whatsoever in an emergency. So, whatever heartfelt promises might have been made at launch, the crew should probably anticipate becoming totally self-dependent within a few generations. And all the while, things will be running down and needing repairing or replacing. Sure, you can launch with a whole bunch of 3D printers, but you'll also need the raw materials to do that printing, and not everything can be recycled. And of course, personnel turnover is a problem too. Sure, you can launch with a crew full of PhDs, and being PhDs, they might be able to teach their kids some pretty sophisticated stuff. But those kids won't ever get PhDs themselves, meaning there'll be a general loss of skills and innovation over the generations. You really do need a village to raise a child, and 80 people is a pretty small village. So, on the face of it, a generational starship is about as good an idea as sending colonists on a one-way mission to Mars. The alternative of sending frozen eggs and sperm that are mixed together and grown up by robots when they near their destination is its own particular nightmare. And of course, once you mention robots, well, why don't we just send robots? leaving all us fragile folk at home to watch from a safe distance. This is the end bit. So, there you go. We are all stuck here on Spaceship Earth, orbiting the Sun at 30 kilometres a second, while the Sun orbits the galaxy at 220 kilometres a second. But at least it's a big spacecraft with lots of room to move around. The idea of swapping that for spending your life in a couple of rooms, one of which is a toilet, on the promise that your kids or your kids' kids might visit an alien world, is not really an attractive proposition. 
But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you don't want to spend your life in a couple of rooms where one of them's a toilet, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll try and build some Matrix-type entertainment system that works in cryo-freeze. Although we'll also quietly suggest you could just send robots. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.